This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We are very, very happy to have you all here. Let me give you a little bit of context and history about the Bay Area Global Health Seminar Series. When um, Sue Desmond Hellman and Jeff Bluestone invited me to come here to UCSF two and a half years ago, the big picture idea was to make the Bay Area a hub for global health. UCSF as part of that, of course, but we thought early on that um, it was important to have other players in the Bay Area, like the leading universities, but also um, biotech, uh, IT, Silicon Valley, uh, Capital Venture, um, in order to really make this um, a big hub for global health. And uh, increasingly, size matters. Just look um, in Boston, Harvard and MIT having a strong alliance and partnership. So the idea here was to explore, and the way this evolved was uh, having conversations with Berkeley first, Eva Harris, Art Reinhold, uh, Jeff Owen, um, George Breslauer, and now more recently my dear friend Steph Bertossi, was my partner in crime for the last two decades um, about having a stronger collaboration and partnership with Berkeley. But then uh, Michelle Barry, I went to visit, Michelle is here, uh, went and visited her at Stanford, and we also had this idea, how can we join forces? How can we do better? And then um, at UC Davis, I visited Pat Conrad and... Uh, then had lunch with uh, uh, Michael Lamer and uh, Pat and uh, Jonah, who's here as well. Um, that was last May. And that's where the notion of a Bay Area Global Health Seminars series evolved. Um, the acronym might be BACS, BACS of Knowledge. Now, I, I heard more recently that maybe technically speaking... Davis is not really part of the Bay Area, but that's a minor thing. I mean, it's the extended. It's a delta. Always. It's a delta, exactly. So if we keep with the name, I think the important notion is, regardless of the name, is the potential to have real synergies in global health with the um, tremendous knowledge base of uh, veterinary medicine, One Health, um, agriculture with Davis, with Berkeley, and so many other fronts. Same with Stanford. So I think the opportunities here, it took probably a year to get all of us uh, together. The topic of today will be um, HIV. And HIV, AIDS at the crossroads, where do we go from here? And uh, we will have a panel of very distinguished uh, experts looking at the problem from different angles. And I think that's the richness precisely of having um, this uh, partnership with other 
universities in the Bay Area. So it's uh, with a huge sense of pride and privilege that I want to introduce uh, Sue Desmond Hellman uh, to give us a few words of uh, welcome. Sue, as you all know, is uh, going to transition soon to the Gates Foundation. I think they are very lucky to have her. Um, Sue leaves behind a tremendous legacy, and uh, I just want to recognize in public her great support for global health. Join me in welcoming Sue Desmond Heldman. Thank you, Jaime, and uh, uh, most importantly, welcome to all of you. I am absolutely thrilled to be here to add my uh, couple words of hopefully some wisdom uh, to, and to support the Bay Area uh, Global Health Seminar Series. I know Jaime will work with all of you for a really good Northern California acronym. I always liked NCOG, the Northern California Oncology Group, which was a real powerhouse sort of thing. So you can do things with NNC if you want a Northern California thing. But the really important thing, I think, for me is to see Northern California and the great institutions that are represented in this room um, become a place to go for excellence in global health. I think that's what the Bay Area deserves. I think the intellect and the firepower and the sense of social justice that we all share in Northern California does bind us together. And so I am particularly thrilled to see um, uh, today top scientists uh, from Stanford, Berkeley, Davis, and UCSF, because each of these universities are contributing their excellence to what happens in the world. Um, one of the things that I was both surprised and inspired by when I came back to UCSF as chancellor is the tagline um, to advance health worldwide. And um, in a very positive way, I've come to know what all of you probably knew for a long time, which is no matter what corner of the university where you work in, or serve, and it may be um, some medicine for uh, um, somebody who has means or something at San Francisco General or in the neighborhoods of Sacramento that are so challenged by poverty that what connects all of us is a wish to improve things in the world. Um, and where we do that varies widely across our institutions, but I have come to really love advancing health worldwide as a tagline for UCSF because it does bind all of the people at UCSF who are trying to make a difference. Now, UCSF is proud of our achievements, and one of the fun things I get to do as, as chancellor is talk to the world about those. So I want to point out to you that when former chancellor Haile DeBoss created Global Health Sciences here 10 years ago, he really galvanized what was happening at UCSF but didn't have a moniker or a home or a name. And due to Jaime's great efforts and leadership, there will be a home right here at Mission Bay that will physically connect um, many people working in global health here on the newest campus at UCSF. And I think one of the things I hope to see, and today's seminar is evidence of that, is to use our convening power. Um, and the convening power of a great institution with leaders like Haile and like Jaime and others is really important. So a few facts about what is really a new but mighty program. Our master's in global health sciences degree program now is in its sixth year. We have world-renowned faculty working in global health and researchers working in 110 countries. We have more than 700 projects with an international component. Our rankings in NIH research funds awarded for global health categories, number one for HIV, one for malaria, number two for vector-borne disease, 
number four for emerging infectious disease, number five for TB. So one of the things that's wonderful to see is the collective energy and power at UCSF focused on some of these most important problems of the world. And I, for one, hope that I have made a contribution as chancellor to that excellence, but I expect five years and 10 years from now that global health uh, sciences at UCSF will be even more powerful and that this hub that Northern California represents for global health sciences will be recognized all the world over and that Stanford and Davis and Berkeley and San Francisco will be part of a family of people globally who are striving for excellence in global health. So I'm really happy to see all of you here today and I'm between you and your scientific program. So I'm gonna uh, shut up and stop talking, but I wanna congratulate Jaime and all of his colleagues for pulling this together and thanking all of you. It's not easy to drive up from Stanford or come over the bridge or under the bay. Uh, and it's particularly a long ways from Davis. And uh, the, I think the economy is good because the traffic is bad. So I know it's not easy to come and face traffic jams and, and logistics and everything. But it really matters that we have a thriving and excellent community that's focused on global health and issues like HIV AIDS here. Uh, so congratulations to all of you and enjoy the seminar. Thank you very much for those um, encouraging words. I wanted to give a word of thanks to Haile Debas, who has um, initiated Global Health Sciences, and the University of California Global Health Institute is um, providing the video streaming for all campus, so that is also um, thanks to Haile. Uh, special word of thanks for Catherine Lee. She must be somewhere around here. Here she is. Uh, Catherine was incredibly helpful in, in helping put all of this program together. So you see here um, staging Davos, kind of. It's kind of the, Davis, the Davos of the poor, but <laughs> nonetheless, um, the spirit is to um, provoke a lively conversation and exchange of ideas. And to moderate that panel, um, Paul Wolverine will be the moderator, master of ceremony. So, Paul, please. I'm going to start out by sitting down. Because that's what this will be today. Um, and I'll have the other uh, panelists come up. Why don't you come up now? Mike, Diane, Aaron, and Steph. So I know the chancellor had to leave, but um, she's done a series of uh, interviews in this room uh, over the past couple of years, her leadership series, and that's what we're, in a sense, modeling of uh, conversations, um, hopefully productive ones. Uh, the decision to choose HIV and AIDS as the, as the topic for the first of these uh, seminars was an easy one for me. That's what I do. Um, but also I think uh, it's, it's true that HIV uh, and AIDS response has it's been an important uh, aspect of each of the campuses that are, that are going to be part of the discussion today. Um, and the response, uh, the global response to HIV and AIDS 
uh, has obviously been very successful. We heard this morning from uh, from Eric Goosby. Uh, we have uh, Sir Richard Feacham here, who also has played a major role in in that uh, uh, global response. And I think what we're seeing now is that HIV and AIDS globally is becoming um, a broader platform that's being used to um, on which to build uh, responses to other uh, important healthcare conditions as well. So I think it gives us a, a starting point, hopefully, for uh, what, I, what I hope is a, is a good dialogue. Um, the goal of this discussion really is just that. It's a dialogue, uh, and um, Diane and I and others have uh, done similar kind of discussions at the CSIS in, uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, and I hope this is halfway as, uh, as informative as, as some of those have, uh, have been. Um, the uh, panelists that we have are, are, um, are really special. Um, Mike, uh, Mike Larimore is the uh, dean of the School of Veterinary Medicine at UC Davis. Um, UCSF talks a lot about uh, being number one in NIH funding uh, for for our schools, and Davis uh, is the number one uh, funded uh, research um, uh, uh, university in veterinary medicine, uh, and we'll hear, uh, obviously, uh, how that integrates in with um, uh, with the rest of, uh, of uh, the global health uh, response at, at Davis. Um, Aaron Ben-David is at uh, Stanford University and has uh, played a major role in uh, research, especially with an economic uh, cost-effectiveness uh, um, uh, perspective, and eager to hear more about that. <clears throat> Diane Havler is the uh, head of the AIDS uh, division at San Francisco General Hospital and has been conducting uh, some very important and very large uh, uh, research uh, trials and research groups abroad. We heard some about that this, uh, in the earlier program today from one of her young faculty members. And Steph Bertozzi is the um, uh, dean, the new, still new dean of the School of Public Health at, uh, at UC uh, Berkeley. And um, in, in sort of an interesting twist, uh, Steph and Jaime come down from the gates and Sue Desmond goes up there. I don't know if it's a fair trade, but we're, we're okay with things. Um, so what I'd like to do is invite, uh, so we have a, a, some questions that uh, the group uh, tossed around a little bit beforehand to get our conversation um, uh, started. Uh, but I'd encourage you to, to jump in on each other's uh, comments, uh, ask each other questions as well. I think this, uh, this is meant to be uh, informative, but also... Uh, enjoyable. Um, and so with that, I think I'll start with Diane, um, because the first question really was, we chose the topic for this uh, session to be HIV AIDS at the crossroads. I'm not sure exactly what we meant by that, but what do you think we meant by that? And what kind of uh, crossroads do you think we're at, um, implying that we have a choice of directions in which to go in our, in our work with HIV and AIDS? Well, it's great to be here. Thanks. Um, you know, I think we, when I think of crossroads, two years ago, I would say we were at a really big crossroads in HIV AIDS. And, and there's three things I'd probably put on my list for that. The first was, were we going to use the new evidence we had with treatment, treatment as prevention, and PrEP? Were we going to take it to heart and really put our resources and our efforts um, behind that? and uh, roll out treatment and combination prevention. That was question one, I would say, at the crossroads two years ago. And I think there's a lot of evidence to say that we did go forth. We changed our guidelines. 
question two was, are we going to be serious about the cure research agenda? I mean, I think that, you know, we, we're familiar with that. Does it have relevance to global health? Absolutely. Cure is cure, vaccine, treatment, prevention. They're all part of beginning to end the AIDS epidemic. And I think the answer to that was, yes, we are going to put significant resources to a scalable cure. That's all we should be talking about, I think, with this group. And then third, and I'm sitting between two... Uh, people with great knowledge in money and economy, so I'm a little nervous about saying this, is are we going to evolve where countries start really taking serious ownership and investing in the health of their own country, and particularly in their HIV care, because there were certainly, are certainly countries that can do that. How and when will they do that? And I would love to hear what you guys both think, because I think we've seen some movement in that area. And I think that was a crossroad we were at two years ago that we're now st going forward on a path. Why don't we pick up on that? Um, so you raised the economic issue as, as, a, as a challenge now. Um, Aaron, why don't you start uh, talking about that? What's your perspective from Stanford? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks again for, uh, for uh, hosting us. This is a, a great uh, um, forum. Um, so so there, there are a few aspects of the, the economics that are sort of important to note. One is the fact that um, uh, the, the financing response to HIV for the past few years has sort of uh, plateaued. You know, for, uh, for, for many years, uh, the, it felt like um, you know, we could sort of keep going up on the funding levels, uh, especially the, the internationally financed uh, response to HIV. And that sort of seems to have slowed down, and that um, uh, brings up the, you know, the, 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 those phrase that economists love so much, resource constraints. And so now we have to deal with resource constraints um, and how do we uh, think about uh, the continuing, continuing the response under uh, uh, true resource constraints. There seems to be uh, a real ceiling, at least so far as, uh, as what uh, uh, international donors are uh, willing to provide. Um, and, uh, and I think this is exactly the time when uh, sort of a lot more of the sort of operational and 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 uh, the 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 thought the the research on exactly what provides good value, um, uh, given the the existing uh, set of, of available resources, uh, really becomes uh, uh, relevant. And there's uh, there's you know a whole open field of of questions that uh, that that this can uh, really open up. So. You want to hear about the, the programs at each of the universities on, on stage, if you will, um, and, and we'll get back to that. But So give that some thought. We want to hear about uh, economics at Stanford and what you're, uh, what you're doing there. Uh, Steph, um, same sort of general area, resource constraints. Um, you're now the – I think there's only one public health school represented on this, on this group. Um, how does that affect your answer to the question? And – what do you see going forward? I'm not sure how that affects the answer to the question. I'll just answer it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I, I think that what Diane's third thing about developing countries starting to take more responsibility, um, that is actually, the corner is well turned on that. Last year, 53% of funding in low- and middle-income countries came from the countries themselves. So when we started this extraordinary increase in funding that was created by PEPFAR and the Global Fund, I don't think many people would have predicted that by now we would be at a position where developing countries themselves were spending more than that combined enormous amount of money. Mm -hmm. So that's really, I think, a, a really important development. Now, of course, that's far from homogeneously spread across countries. Um, but you see a country with as big a burden as South Africa and what a large percentage of the 
financial cost is now borne by the country. Botswana is now well over 90%. Now, these are obviously countries in Africa with resources, but there has been a real shift um, from where we were when the PEPFAR Global Fund efforts started. Um, related to sort of the economics and the crossroads, uh, because we've seen, this is back to your first point, on whether the world was going to really invest in scaling up treatment and treatment as prevention as part of that, as a result of that massive scale-up, like it or not, we've been forced to confront the issues of efficiency in treatment. And so far, we've confronted them in the sense of dramatically driving down the cost of having a person treated for a year. So what does that mean that we now face? In other words, what haven't we yet addressed? Well, the first thing right within the treatment space is that we've addressed the fact that we now are much more efficient at getting someone on treatment in terms of cost per year. We haven't yet really started at looking at the cost of a year on effective treatment. And that, I think, is something that is now staring us in the face in terms of a crossroad. We, we have to do that because treatment can look inexpensive at a cost per person per year, but if what you're doing is treating somebody in a very effective means of generating resistance in that person rather than keeping them virally suppressed so that they stay healthy, then it becomes very inefficient very quickly. And the second thing related to that is I think that the fact that we made so much progress on efficiency in the treatment space should shine a very bright light on the prevention space where we haven't made the same progress. And I think that that is you know, the other road that we must go down that we have not yet really gone down. And both the, those two things are linked in the sense of better use of data. I mean, I've said for a number of years, nobody ever listens to me, so <laughs> things don't change. <laughs> but you're a dean. He is now. I, th I think when I was at the Gates Foundation, people listened a lot more than they do now. <laughs> and now all I have is a microphone. No, <laughs> nothing to back it up with. <laughs> Take but, a collection up. <laughs> exactly. But um, you, you cannot imagine Starbucks not knowing what the costs and sales were at every single Starbucks outlet, right? And they have lots of them, right? But we think nothing out of pouring billions of dollars into treatment through PEPFAR and the Global Fund in Developing Countries and having not the vaguest idea how one clinic performs compared to another clinic. We have some ideas about how programs or systems perform at the very macro level. But you can't possibly drive high-level performance at the level of the entire system if you don't know at the level of the service production unit how well it's performing or not. If we don't know for each clinic what proportion of their patients are virally suppressed and what their costs look like compared to what they're, putting, uh, what they're producing, we can't possibly get to where we need to be to do what Aaron has just said, which is get much more out of the money we have to spend. And so we have to get there. That's for me. I mean, I don't know if it's a crossroad. I think those are three roads we, we are now confronted with, forced, being forced to go down. Great. Um, <clears throat> Mike, same question to you. Yeah, crossroads, uh, what, uh, what do you see? I think, as uh, first of all, thank you uh, for being here and representing uh, UC Davis. Um, it, it is kind of full circle for me. I, I was a young uh, virologist um, sitting in a laboratory studying a obscure sheep virus uh, ovine progressive pneumonia, which none of you know about. Um, and the uh, electron micrograph came across the lab that uh, indicated that it was a lentivirus that was infecting the patients in San Francisco. So, uh, you know, the world uh, changed uh, with that. And we've seen 
you know, as a, as a comparative virologist and then um, subsequently a, a leader in these different programs, I've seen different crossroads occur throughout the, you know, the many decades since then, um, you know, including uh, recognition of comparative or uh, other types of information where multidisciplinary teams uh, work together. Um, I think right now, um, you know, based upon what the, the other panelists have just indicated in terms of the, the huge investment, is that we are at a, at a state where resources are limited. And, and um, one thing I can say that bringing multidisciplinary teams together at a community-based level um, in these global environments have to operate that way. Um, we see it in our teams. Um, we have uh, what we call a One Health approach um, within the uh, School of Veterinary Medicine, and, and in, in fact, it, it originated uh, from uh, really the One Medicine concept, where the problems that we face in society are, are really complex problems that require multiple disciplines involved. For us, um, our entire mission within the school is the health of animals, people, and the environment. So uh, many of our teams, as we approach them, and we have uh, uh, people stationed throughout the world. Jana leads a, uh, an effort, a USAID-funded uh, grant to look at uh, predicting the next pandemic uh, with zoonotic diseases. And as we know, when we go into those environments, that very often we are in a resource-limited uh, uh, environment where we have to put together teams and focus on what the community needs are. And I think uh, when we discuss a particular disease like HIV, we also have to look at the, the other factors within the community often, um, factors such as uh, access to health care, but also basic things like water, um, uh, animal proteins, uh, nutrition, um, efforts to be able to really link up what the community needs in order to establish uh, what the resources are and then how to use those effectively. And I think for our part, what the excitement from uh, our perspective would be that uh, we see a lot of value in having these multidisciplinary teams at the community level uh, to be able to bring in aspects of nutrition, agriculture, even veterinary medicine, because if we can't feed the people and the food supply, it becomes very difficult then to get health care access. So um, I think one of the crossroads is very similar in the sense of also focusing within the community who the critical needs are. For HIV, obviously, I think women uh, are really the key to that, um, getting adequate education to women. Um, I saw posters out in the students uh, investigating uh, contraceptive, uh, you know, and looking at social scientists, bringing teams of people with those backgrounds in in addition to economists that allow us to make good decisions about that. So I would agree with the panel that I think um, adequate and efficient, effective treatments uh, involve um, a quite, a, quite a large number of people and quite a large number of disciplines to, to take a fresh look uh, to be able to use those resources in a, in a maximal fashion. Diane, a question for you. Um, HIV and AIDS, UCSF has been at this for, for quite a while. What do you think our, um, as an institution, our leadership position should be going forward? Where, where would we put our, um, our effort? How do we have a, a, a coherent program as we're so, sort of hearing, I think, from Davis in terms of how they're thinking about this? 
I think that we've, I'd like to say that we, we're like the Silicon Valley of HIV. We're always on the cutting edge of new innovative advances, both in the laboratory and in the clinic and on a population level. So I'm not sure exactly how to say how we tie it all together, but I do want to pick up on your comment, which I really, really liked. And I think it also kind of relates to Steph and thinking about how we're going to be efficient. And maybe later on I can talk a little bit about the big study that we're doing, but the entire premise of when we started looking at how we scale up from the ground up, we started with multidisciplinary. And we started with economists, we started with social scientists, because to be honest, the medical part was really quite simple. And in fact, I would say when people said there's going to be less money, makes you look at your efficiency, people assume you'll get worse care. That is false. Sometimes when you go look what you're doing, you end up with better care. And that's whether you're in San Francisco in a health system or that's whether you're in a resource-constrained um, country. But, I, but I, just to bring home kind of what you said, so I, I want to just share a, a short story with, in a rural area we're working, I was talking to one of the community leaders in Uganda, they're called uh, local councilmen, and somebody asked him, our DSMB was, was interviewing, he's a farmer, like, have you noticed anything different about this treatment? He's like, Oh, yeah. He goes, you can tell because when people are doing better, they buy more expensive farming equipment. And then he said, and you know, in your health campaigns, do you mind if I come and I talk to the community about farming techniques? And he looked at me in the eye and he said, and you know, if people can't eat, they're not going to come and take your HIV medicine. I was like, wow. This was just, but I think it was from the community exactly what you said and really emphasize how we all need to be taking a multidisciplinary approach. And Aaron, back to you. So I wanted to talk about the economics uh, at Stanford. Is that the core of what's going on? Tell us about Stanford. Uh, so, um, so, well, so um, a few years ago, there was at some point a discussion about whether Stanford should have a, a school of public health and um, uh, a few people, uh, you know, said, uh, you know, that would be, you know, an amazing uh, thing. But uh, uh, in the end, um, the, the the thought was, well, Stanford really has um, a school of public health in the sense that uh, the entire university is sort of right there, all in in one spot. And so, um, in the sense that uh, public health, in many ways, is is a way of bringing in um, social scientists and and uh, uh, health scientists and uh, uh, engineers, you know, people from sort of physical sciences. All together, um, Stanford can uh, have sort of a, the way of, of bringing it all together, and that's um, uh, been a, a very nice thing that uh, that uh, Stanford has been able to do. Uh, when uh, when Michelle Berry came to Stanford, she's sort of organized um, a lot of the, the global health activities, and a lot of them uh, have uh, sort of an HIV element to them. Um, really, from uh, the engineering school, from the design school, um, from the business school, economics is uh, is obvious is obviously a strength, and that's uh, but that's just one um, that's just one sort of aspect uh, uh, of what uh, Stanford has to um, um, sort of has to offer. I think, you know, insofar as um Insofar as some of the, the sort of um, uh, strong suits, uh, for sure, uh, e- economics and decision science has been uh, sort of a, a strong suit of Stanford. Has been uh, sort of a strong tradition. But uh, the other uh, side that I would like to sort of emphasize is um, well, two others. One is the engineering, and the other one is the design school. So the design school at Stanford has um, uh, sort of uh, brings together. 
uh, people from um, a variety of, uh, essentially it's a way of thinking about solutions and it's a way of sort of thinking about solutions and, uh, from uh, really sort of understanding the problem sort of very, very deeply and, and, and creatively uh, coming up with, uh, with a way of, of, uh, of thinking about uh, 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 solutions and has been very successful at um, uh, designing products and, and services um, uh, for, um, uh, for uh, global health uh, uh, issues. There's, uh, there's uh, an entire um, set of uh, companies that, uh, that have spawned out of the, the design school, including DREV and companies that are sort of here based in the, in the Bay Area. Um, and then the engineers are uh, the, other, uh, the other sort of um, uh, strength of Stanford. And uh, it turns out that, um, you know, that, that for um, much of what they do day in, day out may, may has to do, may have to do with computers, but every once in a while they actually, you know, think about, you know, sort of human beings and health and things like that. Um, and, uh, and we've been able to capitalize on, on that. And, um, and, uh, and we collaborate regularly with engineers who think a lot about sort of optimizing systems uh, uh, in so much, in so, uh, in so far as they think about how to um, make uh, airlines more efficient, they also think about how to sort of make health systems more efficient. Uh, and uh, and that's been sort of a, 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 you know something that's been fun to work with. So, Steph, I, I joked a little bit about you're the only public health school, but you just heard Aaron talk about Stanford in the sense having a virtual one. I would say, from our perspective at UCSF, that while um, it's possible to make these collaborations outside the health sciences, um, we look to Berkeley and say you have a school of engineering, a school of law, public health. How are you? going about bringing them together in public health um, activities? Um, I think that it's a huge opportunity, and, and there has been a lot of progress, but I think that there's a huge amount of potential left on the table still. I mean, we have a very successful program with UCSF on bioengineering, for example. Um, but I think that we have unsuccessfully linked bioengineering to public health. Um, turns out there's another program at the Lawrence Berkeley Labs on development engineering, health, agriculture, and other forms of development, which we have inadequately linked to public health as well and to each other, to the bioengineering um, program. So I think that there are lots of potential linkages that can be made. I think we, um, one of the things as, you know, in a sense, the charge that, Sue and Jaime uh, gave us in, in their opening remarks is how do we take extraordinary individuals doing fabulous science at these four institutions and somehow make the ensemble much more transformative than, than they are individually. And I, I have to say that coming back to academia, I'm struck by how all of the incentives are aligned to keep people shining brightly individually <laughs> rather than come together in a much larger effort. And, you know, I, I think that in recent years, one could certainly point to the Human Genome Project as being the anti of that. But what was pointed out to me actually just this morning at Berkeley is that the traditions are very different in different parts of our campus and that the physical sciences can't possibly work that way. You can't build a cyclotron or something for one person, right? So the physical sciences have a different approach to big science, if you will. Well, we're dealing here today with a big problem. And I think that we have a, an enormous opportunity to take a few of these big problems and say, instead of focusing on how individual faculty can be 
shining stars, maybe get their Nobel Prize. How do we turn that into a mosaic? And how do we create the incentives to make that happen? And I, I, you know, one of the things that I think is exciting is for us to sit down in global health and think, what are the few areas where we have you know, the $100 million play as opposed to the individual faculty play? Um, the example that I left behind in, actually Jaime and I both left behind because he was originally the relationship manager from the Gates Foundation and then I replaced him and that was with the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Um, you know, that's a, an exercise in bringing together the world's data on global burden of disease. We can talk about how perfect or imperfect it is, but there's no question in my mind that that is a transformative scale effort that aims to create the mosaic which people can then fill in. And I think that in HIV, we need to ask ourselves the same thing. And we can, I don't know exactly what the typology is. Maybe it's cure, maybe it's delivery science, maybe it's this. But in some limited number of areas, we need to say, we're going to collectively work on the mosaic. We're going to own the world's best data on what's filled and what's unfilled. And I, I think oftentimes, just as with IHME, revealing the empty is as important as being the bright light that says, I fixed this. But if you're fixing this in a sea of empty, then the effect on global health is minimal. And so the question is, can we, in a few areas, you know, create that, that mosaic and then start to fill it together? So one of the uh, questions that we have on this list is kind of that. What are the, what are the gaps? And, if, and I think it would be important um, to, to have each of the panelists talk about that at your own institution. Uh, what would you like to be doing that you're not now doing? And maybe in the hopes of, of forming, as a result of these dialogues, some ongoing uh, collaboration. So, Mike, do you want to take no, that? Uh, if I can comment on that, I would uh, very much agree that, um, you know, collectively as we incentivize or as we organize ourselves and look at how we can um, best um, take advantage of the, of the individual talents, you know, we, we have good examples. Um, you know, we center grants, for example. I, when we think of our strengths within the School of Veterinary Medicine, Certainly, infectious disease would would uh, be up there, and it, it's been rewarded by a a really an approach similar to what you just outlined. Where, while we lead the effort, a USAID grant, which was uh, I think it's a seventy five million dollar grant, headed by John and Mazette, um, is really uh, thinking about it not from the context of how can we at Davis lead the effort. It's really who around the world. Um, do we collaborate with to solve a problem? And in this case, you know, involves you know institutions like Columbia, um, or uh, NGOs, uh, or other government uh, agencies, where the problem is, um, where is the next pandemic uh, going to come from? If we had thought like that in 1959, uh, we may not have had um, an AIDS problem um, because we would have had the capacity at the local level. And that was always a dream. Uh, I know of Fred Murphy's at the CDC, one of my mentors, is that we would have capacity building in countries where these emerging pathogens come from. But even in that setting where we have a identified problem, we have an identified group of very strong uh, institutions focused on it, we have to be smart. And smart means that we can't screen for every single uh, pathogen out there. Uh, we have to think about where... Where are we likely going to see them? Uh, and it turns out there's a smaller list of species. Uh, where are we going to see it? At the interface between where people are disrupting 
really the biodiversity or at that interface. Um, when we focus on those countries at that interface where we have disruptive uh, people going into new territories and we focus on the right species, and then even within a subject like virology where we, we know the virus families uh, that are likely to be crossing species barriers, uh, but we have really simplified the technologies with PCR-based uh, assays and that can be put into uh, things like cargo containers, um, making laboratories for $40,000 instead of our what you know, $350 to $500 per square foot that we have in a building like this. So we do have the capacity, we do have the technology, um, and focused on a problem, have the various um, incentives such as USAID grant. I think the key for us going forward is how do we then um, make sure that it's sustainable uh, within the country so that uh, we're helping our various partners around the world uh, help themselves and then invest, as, as has been mentioned. I think that's a real key. But, uh, again, that partnership around a, a, a big problem, I think, is where I'm excited about Northern California because that's the reason I came back here as well because I saw the capacity and the, and the institution and the, um, the ability to focus on those large societal problems. But what gap do you see um, in your programs at Davis that you might think about um, filling? Well, one of the, the gaps, if we think about uh, food, for example, and the chancellor is very much interested in this, and we formed a, a world food center when we thought of what, you know, what are we uh, really known for within the uh, Sacramento region um, and California is uh, food. And so when we looked across campus, um, there's about 30 centers uh, focused on food. Uh, we have a, a Western Institute of Food Safety dealing with things like outbreaks of E. coli and spinach. And, and that brings together uh, the FDA. It brings together commodity groups. It uh, brings together university uh, investigators. But that's a, more of a focus on infectious disease and as it relates to that and animal health. But what she wants to do is form more of a Brookings Institute uh, where we really lar- look at the large uh, issues. And those do go global, obviously. When we think of a World Food Center, I think there's a real uh, uh, you know, opportunity, uh, I think, to bring in our engineers, um, the various centers, to link them and to understand what do we have in the Bay Area related to the world food situation. And as mentioned, uh, that is um, nutrition is a, is a stable if we're going to feed 9 billion people uh, by the year 2050. And, and if we're going to do that, we have to be smart about it. And that's where a gap is right now. It's not so much we don't have the individual centers and expertise, is we're not focused necessarily on the big problems. And that's what we're, we're trying to do at Davis, but I see... Uh, it goes well beyond Davis. It, it needs to also include, you know, Berkeley, Stanford, uh, and UCSF. So, Aaron, same question to you. Um, Stanford has a lot of strengths. We've we've heard of some of them. Are there are there areas where you personally, or maybe you and Michelle, would like to see um, uh, developed uh, more fully? Yeah, you know, it's it's um it's it's a hard question to try to see the white space, uh, um, and um and I think uh, you know I mean Steph Steph gave us a, a good uh, charge, um, um, 
One, one, one sort of approach potentially to doing something like that would be a sort of a mapping effort and uh, uh, seeing, uh, seeing exactly sort of where, uh, where we are, and not necessarily geographically, although that could certainly be part of it, but also thematically. Um, and, then, uh, and then understanding, especially between the four institutions, uh, where it is that we have uh, uh, substantial gaps. Um, that still leaves open a question of what's what's needed out there in the world. Uh, um, you know, we may have gaps between the institutions uh, that may not be that important. I think uh, one of the, the, the challenges we have is actually connecting with um, some of the some of the policy worlds and and um, and things that happen sort of on the on the other coast um, and uh, and you know I think that there can be sort of real uh, um, uh, sort of real efforts to uh, to, uh, to really b better understand better align you know in terms of what's happening at at Stanford that could uh, that potentially could be are useful, especially thinking about some of the other uh, the other uh, uh, representatives here in the panel. I mean, I think um, uh, th there's a lot of stuff that happens at Stanford in terms of uh, sort of uh, uh, basic discovery, um, the immunology of, of HIV and um, and and some virology. Um, but th there there could be sort of direct um, uh, direct connection on that. Uh, there's a lot that happens on um, on the um, sort of policy and economics, um, there's not as much on the epidemiology. And so there are things, that are sort of some areas that are sort of complementary um, th that I think would be nice to sort of have some kind of a joint um, um, mapping effort of, of what's available uh, uh, to see really how we can complement each other. Same question to you, Diane. What, what would you like to see if, if we were to grow something here that would fill a, a current relative gap, at least? Well, I think it's a great question. And I, I do think this is about AIDS, and we all should be working to end the AIDS epidemic. So it's kind of like, what are the pillars? I'm going to focus on one where I think we really could use some help across the campuses, and that is really um, implementation. Okay, we're talking about scale-up. And I really, because uh, Mars is a medical campus, I don't know this, but I think there must be lessons in engineering. There must be lessons in business um, that we are just not utilizing. I mean, healthcare itself in the United States is not the most efficient business, okay? So I think across these disciplines, and um, particularly with uh, UC Berkeley and Stanford, there's a lot of missed opportunities, to be honest, and some, some real ways to drill down and figure out how we can improve um, uh, uh, systems. And I guess something, um, and I, I would have to say that, big data, we're already working with biostats at Berkeley, which has been fabulous. Um, I think it, that is a huge part of the landscape, that we're collecting a lot of data. I'm not convinced we're using it. And it's all about asking the right question. Okay, people are collecting reams of data right now, but what are the questions and how are we going to get those answers? And then maybe just to offer with Davis, we have some big medical observational infrastructures. Maybe there's research questions you could add on to those in a very efficient way, and that maybe would be part of the mapping strategy where we can say, look, and that isn't exactly what your question was, but I think it's a, a missed opportunity. Absolutely. Just to, just to follow okay, up with ahead. that, sure. uh, you know, one of the things that... Um, that we had, uh, Jaime mentioned that when we had lunch and, and when we were over here, is the mapping of um, uh, and the creation of databases of what they've done within the global health um, area is a real advantage uh, if we can replicate that similar type databases. So we know, you know, when we go into a country that we're not individually creating new networks, but we're, we're taking advantage of who is already there and networking with them. Um, so I would agree with you. I think that 
you know, coming uh, forth and saying, here's our question. Uh, what kind of tools can you bring to that, that, that particular issue? Um, and then a forum that, that allows that discussion to occur. And then probably sharing of, of those resources across. It's, it's sometimes difficult even within an institution to do that. But, you know, if we're going to solve the, the larger issues, those kind of cross-university, cross-institutional sharing uh, have to be figured out. So, Steph, um, GAP, something that you've seen in your time at Berkeley that we could... Well, it's harder to go forth, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll let you go first next time. <laughs> so I'd like to second what my fellow panelists have said. Um, let, let me build off of a c- couple of them. Um, one is the issue of food. And... Um, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know that Berkeley was a land-grant university before I got there. Um, and it turns out that both of us are land-grant universities and uh, not surprisingly, therefore, care a lot about food. Um, we have an extraordinary imperative in this country with respect to food-related illness. And we are in a state which has a demographic um, makeup which makes us even more susceptible to many of the consequences of that. So. That's been occupying some of my, my thinking recently. And the reason I mention that is because there is a huge white space in the food space, which is similar to the white space we have in the HIV prevention space, and that's that we're not very good at getting people to do what they should do for their health. So there's a behavioral space there, and by extension, it's not just that we're not very good at getting people to do what they need to do for their own health. We're not very good at getting providers to do what they should do for their patients' health. We're not very good at getting decision makers and policy makers to do what they should do for their population health. Um, I want to just qualify what Diane said about how we're not very efficient in this country in the healthcare system. I, I would say, well, we're really efficient at extracting money from the economy to make people <laughs> money. Um, you know, we are extraordinarily good, and we're very sophisticated at how to make money in health, right? I mean, the extraordinary thing about moving back to this country, married to a practicing physician, is the classes she had to go to to figure out how to learn how to code mm-hmm. so that the, the university could more efficiently extract resources from every physical exam that she did. The good thing about that is that we know a lot about measurement and analysis of the delivery of health services in this country. Unfortunately, we don't use it to advance health. We use it for other reasons. But we can take some of those skills and apply them to maximizing health benefits. So I agree with you about the delivery. I just wonder whether we might think about how the delivery and behavior issues overlap. And the reason I'm especially interested in it is because HIV is a disease that San Francisco taught us at the very beginning could be behaviorally controlled, right? I mean, San Francisco was the best practice example of how it can work, right? And yet we didn't, we didn't end up understanding enough what worked to be able to replicate it and propagate it. So now we're in a situation where we are increasingly turning to non-behavioral um, solutions. And unfortunately, we're going to run into the the problem as we have with every technology, including the treatment of tuberculosis, for example, where we may have the drug, but if we don't get the patient and provider behavior 
um, to be sufficiently changed, we're not going to realize the potential benefit of that drug or that device or that intervention or whatever it is. So that's pretty fuzzy, but I do think that we have a big white space related to behavior of people in the population and providers that uh, collectively we have a lot of expertise to address with for whatever the preposition is. Right. <laughs> Ending with with. So I promised you the first question, So, but this will take off right from that. So one of, the, one of the biomedical prevention techniques that's available is PrEP. Pre-exposure prophylaxis, the idea of taking antiretroviral drugs before you're exposed. Um, it's available, it's approved, um, it's not being used, or at least not in the numbers that people, some, some people anticipated. Thoughts about that um, and whether that's something we, and, and I'll, I'll go this, I'll toss this question if it's productive. For the first three, I won't, I won't ask Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that when you sent an email out, you said, um, you know, is it cost effective? And, uh, and I suppose implicitly wondering if, is that the problem? Um, and I think the, the, so the simple answer to that is sometimes. Um, in some populations, it's certainly cost-effective um, in terms of the benefit-reward ratios, but um, and in other populations, it's clearly not. Now, regardless of whether it's cost-effective, um, we haven't seen the kind of uptake that some people might have wished for. And, um, you know, I, I left the HIV program at the Gates Foundation believing, and that was our strategy, that if we could address in a significant quantum way some of the adherence challenges with PrEP, we could transform it from a very boutique, specialized intervention to something that could be used by much larger populations. And, and the approach to doing that is to create compounds or devices that don't need to be done every day or every time you have sex or whatever. So the bet there is on, on a... Um, long-acting vaginal ring that would release over a month or three months or something a microbicide, and a long-acting injectable that could be used like Depo-Provera every two or three months um, to provide protection. And that the idea would be that even in you know, very underserved populations, one could have the equivalent of a two- or three-month campaign that went through the community and actually created a quantum difference in PrEP in a way that we are unlikely to achieve with a daily use pill or something like that. I, I think the challenge in this country um, is to a significant degree financial. I mean, right now we don't know what the uptake would be if there was better access. And I think it's a shame that we haven't, I mean, you know, in retrospectoscope is, you know, 2020. Um, it's likely that we would achieve the great majority of the beneficial effect of PrEP if taken every day at a significantly lower dose, or at a lower dose at least, than is the treatment dose. Had we done the studies that way and created a product which was not a treatment product but was just a PrEP product, then we might have been able to differentially price that in a way which could have made it much more accessible. But what we did was we did a study at the treatment dose, which means it's the same product at the same dose. And the companies are, you know, from a financial perspective, understandably reluctant to have the same product at the same dose available at two dramatically different prices, even though if they could differentiate it, they'd make a lot more money. But there we are. Diane, what, what's been your experience with PrEP, and is that uh, any further ideas? 
Um, trying to think of things to disagree with you, but I have to say I think that we know prep works if you take it. It's, it's got an, only a niche role right now in the global epidemic. It will have more if it is easier to take and it's long-acting. I mean, it, that, that to me is where the next frontier in PrEP is really going to be. I also think is we, I mean, like, I'm trying to visualize how are we going to work to end the epidemic. I mean, we need to do massive testing. We need to do massive treatment. Then we're going to have high-risk populations. And if we have long-acting prep we can do in those populations, then we can keep the numbers down. So, you know, I think it's going to take us a couple of years. I don't know where all the trials are until we get those long-acting ones. But I think that's where the money is. But I don't want to... Um, make it seem like what we have now, just minimize uh, its effect because it works. But also, we've got to be careful. We can't be unrealistic about um, we've got to monitor people carefully because we don't want to create drug resistance. So I saw a patient recently who was an, an appropriate candidate for uh, PrEP, but who was very afraid of being labeled as having HIV um, if I were to prescribe him PrEP. Um, so I think there are some interesting other twist to this that don't affect our, our, um, our HIV-infected patients? I don't know. Thought, well, seen that? I think it was something, there, there's many elephants in the room we haven't talked about. So one of them is stigma and how stigma intersects with us going forward in the current um, epidemic. And then two is the role of the private sector. So maybe that's something else I think we should get to during this discussion. Aaron, you, you can pick up on PrEP or the private sector, if you want. Yeah, so sure. It's no, an so introduction. Just a couple of things on PrEP. And I, you know, so I generally agree. Um, you know, there are a couple of things about PrEP that are uh, sort of important to think about. One is that, um, in some ways, some of the challenges with PrEP and with many of the sort of ways forward for HIV are, are a result of the success of the HIV science and, and the HIV implementation. And so um, with PrEP, um, well, we have uh, circumcision and we have treatment as prevention, and, and these uh, both are sort of extraordinarily effective. If you're thinking about, mm, let's say, um, a, a couple, a discord, serodiscordant couple, if one is on effective treatment, um, how effective is, is PrEP uh, then for the uninfected partner? Well, um, you know, not nearly as much as probably uh, uh, some of the trials. And so, um, you, you know, when we have this many options, we, um, you know, it calls for much sort of more, more sort of careful thinking about uh, what you're going to do. Um, in addition, um, you know, I, mean, I agree with Steph that if, if you find the right populations, uh, then, uh, then you know, it can be extremely cost-effective, uh, even cost-saving. Um, but if you're talking about as a general population health uh, improvement measure, you know, it's going to be very expensive. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, the, the uninfected population is a lot bigger than an infected population. And so, um, and so you know, it can become uh, really quite costly, especially because of uh, the cost issues that Steph mentioned. Um, the, the, um, the behavioral issue is also, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I think critical. You know, some of the biggest public health successes in the past are things that sort of bypass behavior, clean water, um, uh, you know, uh, micronutrient supplementation. These are, you know, the reasons why we're sitting here relatively healthy and parasite-free um, is, uh, is uh, you know, exactly because Speaking of these. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not got blood. here. But with HIV, we, we, we don't have that yet. And so, you know, I think uh, we don't have sort of a, a behavior-free options for uh, either treatment or prevention. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I think the, the sort of the, the, the research, uh, you know, and the, and the, we can think about sort of marketing and behavioral economics and uh, these sort of uh, nudges uh, that, uh, that can really have a, a pretty substantial impact, um, uh, including on, on the, the usefulness of PrEP. 
I guess you could argue that uh, treat, community treatment at, at, in, at a high fraction ends up being like clean put it, water. Put it in the water, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, Diane raised the question of the private sector. It would be a good thing for us to, to talk a little bit about. Um, you want to start that, um, the role of the private sector? Um, that, Mike. Yeah, I uh, sure. just, uh, you know, even though I wasn't included on the last question, if you want to ask. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. If, if, if you, you want to ask uh, somebody how to treat large populations uh, with medication and uh, understanding behavior in, in communities in a resource intensive way, ask a veterinarian. Yeah. Because we have to do that on a routine basis all the time. So, you know, I think we have to get out of this idea that. Um, uh, only the medical profession has the answers to some of these. When you're talking about uh, delivery mechanisms or large-scale communities that may have antiviral resistance and things, but we are—we very much think that the uh, private side is really important. Um, uh, we see it in their uh, coming to us for investments of particular problems that they want to solve or they want to be invested in. Um, you know, high, from high-throughput genomics, for example. We have a, a, a 100K genome project that is really a partnership with Agilent and the FDA to really sequence, uh, use a very, um, you know, what is becoming much more economical, uh, high-throughput sequencing, to look at every foodborne pathogen, not just a, a single piece of the genome, but the entire genome of 100,000 foodborne pathogens. And we're now having databases where we can, within two hours, predict, you know, what the next foodborne pathogen is by using this technology. And that's really uh, based upon really partnerships with the private industry. So how do we, how do we continue to, to incentivize? Um, I think some things that we're doing locally, which I think are good models, is, is actually we're working with our graduate school of management on uh, innovation entrepreneurship academies, uh, not just by an individual school, but by mixing bioengineers, medicine, and veterinary medicine in academies. And what these... What these are are, you know, often faculty members that have platforms or ideas. Uh, they may be s trying to solve a problem, but they don't really have knowledge of tech transfer or spinoff companies. And but by putting them in the academies, and what they do is they really put them with venture capitalists directly, and really are asking them to uh, present um, by the end of their three days, you know, what their company would be. And it's really fascinating. Last year we had a cardiologist that had a stem cell approach. Uh, that his team was bioengineering graduate students, uh, which formed a spinoff company, which is now at acquisition stage. And so uh, by doing that, it's, it's relatively a low-cost, as it turns out, effort to get people together, but you actively bring in industry uh, to directly hear and, and, and pitch the ideas, essentially, uh, directly. And I think we could do this in this particular setting with problems such as you know, here's our problem. You know, it's delivering at a, at a low cost to a community fresh water or um, a, a therapy that we need to deliver in. And, and it's trying to get those folks together, but also having our faculty think about that in context to the private sector. Steph, thoughts on that? Um, you know, you, you mentioned genomics, and it made me think of something um, in terms of white space. And the white space is that 30 years into this epidemic, it's extraordinary how little we know about why it spreads rapidly in some places and not in others. I mean, I, it's really extraordinary how what the gaping hole in our knowledge of the, the epidemiology of this virus and what is it in KwaZulu-Natal that is so different from places where there's, you know, 
minimal differences in sexual behavior, minimal differences in host and viral genomics. Um, and the reason I mention that is because when you talk about the private sector and these major efforts, and you know, I'm a little bit familiar with what the Beijing Genomics Institute is doing and its capacity. I mean, this is sort of Moore's law applied, you know, to the cost of sequencing, except instead of capacity increases. But anyway, it, it's it's a, it's impressive the curve. So, what it made me think of is that, unlike food and agriculture, where the vast majority of what is spent and delivered and stuff is through the private sector. I mean, compared to health, the proportion that is private in agriculture is, is it's, it's big in health, but we think of 50% or even 70% as big. Well, um, in agriculture, it's probably 99 point something percent, right? So what lessons could we take from that? And I think that one of the things we could think about is if we took a big science approach to understanding the epidemiology or the determinants of why transmission is so different in different places, and we wanted microbiomes and exposomics and host genetics and viral genetics and you know the big science approach to understanding this, well, that's probably going to be unaffordable unless the material and data that we're collecting can serve other purposes. So rather than doing those things in Iceland, um, why don't we think about doing them in KwaZulu-Natal and maybe also in Senegal or whatever so that we can understand the differences, the heterogeneity that we're observing in a way that also contributes to understanding the determinants of other things, whether it's diabetes or whatever, that people might be willing to put more money into. Um, and I haven't, haven't thought before about how some of these omics issues might engage the private sector and therefore help to defray some of the costs. But I think it's a really important and interesting avenue. So one of the um, other things that we thought about uh, going into is taking uh, what we've learned from the study of HIV and AIDS um, and thinking about how that might be applied to other health conditions. And so you, you raise that a bit. And, and Diane, I know that in search, in the, in the large search trial, uh, you're providing other health care than just HIV as a way to kind of uh, make it, um, I guess, more important, really, in terms of providing um, for other chronic diseases. You want to talk about uh, that and how the lessons and approaches that we've taken to HIV might be broadened uh, to other health care conditions? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I, I, I think one of the things in HIV that was just so disturbing, we went through, we've gone through many phases in HIV, and one of them was an all-out war between HIV and other diseases, like who's getting more money. And it was so counterproductive. It was just really, really detrimental. Unfortunately, now we've, we've moved beyond that. We don't go to international meetings and talk and debate about that. It makes no sense of all the investment in HIV not to be building capacity for other diseases. I mean, if you, if you look at that Metrics Institute and you look at the emerging diseases, you know, the top five dailies, none of them are contagious diseases, right? I mean, if you look at women of childbearing age, AIDS is still, you know, the most morbid disease on the planet. But nevertheless, everything we do with HIV, we sh all the money that we've had, we should be continuing to build capacity for other diseases. It serves multiple purposes. First of all, we've got the stigma problem. What we've found is what people are more likely to go for HIV testing when they also get tested for diabetes and hypertension. So you're achieving your HIV goal, but you're also achieving building capacity for other diseases. Um, also, the, the cascade of care, you know, all the talk, all the rave in HIV, only 25% of the people in the United States are suppressed. 
the cascade of care applies to all diseases. Right. It's the same for hypertension. It's the same for diabetes. We need a behavioral economist, and this is what I say in the private sector, they convince us that we need something. We need to convince people that they think they need something for their health. And we need to apply that across diseases. And that's really what I see one of the next frontiers of where we should be going. It just simply makes sense. It maximizes our resources. And that's all the data tell us where we should be going. Around, going to com- comment on that. Um, uh, so, to, to pick up both, both what Diane said as well as the private sector issue, uh, there is a slightly different um, uh, part of the private sector that's involved here, and that's the private sector role in implementation, in the actual delivery of, uh, of care, not necessarily the companies, but the private pharmacies, the private healthcare sector in 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 the countries where a lot of uh, sort of HIV is is an endemic, and we have uh, um, there. Sort of several other examples from other diseases. Uh, uh, for example, uh, tuberculosis in India is managed um, a lot in the private sector, not necessarily always in a, uh, a great way. Um, malaria recently has been uh, sort of um, uh, the role of the private sector has been uh, um, uh, sort of highlighted uh, because of the, the the program that was actually sort of uh, the brainchild of Canero, who's going to be leading the next uh, uh, global health discussion. Uh, the the American sorry, the Affordable Medicine Facility for malaria, um, where a lot of the medicine, uh, malaria medicines were sort of uh, subsidized and, and distributed through the private sector. There's been a reluctance or hesitation about uh, uh, really delivering HIV through the private sector. I think there are lots of concerns about is the care going to be appropriate? Uh, um, are, is there enough sort of skills development in the private sector? Um, but Potentially, the, the private sector can reach a lot more people, a lot more facilely. In, in, some, in some ways, the, sort of the, uh, the, the, the profit motivation uh, can really allow people to you know, reach uh, the, the far corners. And, and a lot of times, the, sort of the, the comparison with Coca-Cola is made of uh, you know, how they can... You know, or Heineken. Can, or Heineken, that's right. Uh, how, how they can reach uh, uh, every corner. I, you know, I, I, I think there's, sort of, there's, a, there's an important role there to think about uh, starting uh, uh, to... Um, about the delivery of, of potentially of, of HIV care uh, in the private sector. And it sounds, Mike, as though, you know, Davis is probably somewhat ahead of us in thinking about the broader uh, array of healthcare problems, even extending to agriculture and the environment. You want to- well, I, d- I don't know if that's true, but I do think that uh, it, what the comments made will really resonate because um, when we think about understanding uh, as we move globally and as we go into different cultures in sub-Saharan Africa or think about What's important to that culture, um, and you talk to a Maasai warrior, it's going to be cattle. Um, and we've had instances where we've actually used the, their relationship with the animals to actually then um, bring them into the healthcare uh, mode. Uh, for example, they're, they're more willing to vaccinate their cattle uh, than they are their children um, in, in some of these cultural settings. So understanding that and then figuring out how can we, uh, within that community, uh, adjust and figure out is it the water supply that we need to focus on? Uh, do we reach them through their their economic um, avenue, which sometimes is animals uh, and or their nutritional aspects? But what we're really striving for is is what you said, which is is really um, taking the the funds that we have, thinking of a community and how do we best deliver healthcare, um, and, and knowing that cultural sensitivities of what they may be interested in, uh, because it may not be what the Western world thinks that they need. Uh, and we've all run into that, I think. Everybody that 
has done anything in the in the global environment understands that's where our cultural anthropologists um, are really needed on teams to really think about these kind of questions. Um, and and you only have to look at the effect of having a single goat um, to a um, a young girl's education. Uh, and we have examples of that where the single goat that's milked provides enough money for her to go to school, and we know women's education is critical to the health care of the community. And so I, I think that that's where we fit in when we think about One Health. I know Diana's sensitive to this, having given, I think, an elephant to Brad Hare when he retired. It's <laughs> <laughs> hard to milk them. <laughs> Carefully. <laughs> I've been trying to convince my wife to let me get a goat, but I didn't realize it was going to help my daughter's education. You, you, you've helped me with We can it. hook you up. <laughs> you know, um, Diane made me think of something when she was talking about the impact on the rest of the healthcare system. It's in HIV, we started off as an infectious disease. And, um, and then we transformed the world of palliative care, right? In countries in which palliative care had never even been mentioned. Um, learning how to die well became incredibly, came to the fore in a way that it had never happened before, including in this country. I mean, we, I, I think it really um, was, I mean, and unfortunately that was when I was here um, in the early years of the epidemic. Um, but now the examples that you used show the evolution. Now the examples you use are diabetes and hypertension. And that's exactly right. You know, we are now a chronic disease. And... Um, and it doesn't really matter whether it has an infectious cause or not, because what we have to do in terms of the healthcare system and the provision and adherence and all of those things are now in a completely different realm. And I think that the bridging one is tuberculosis, which is like us as a chronic disease for six months. Um, but because it's only six months and hopefully soon four months and hopefully not too long two months, um, they have a different kind of an approach, which is that like you put everything at it and you get through those six months then you're done right and we are really in the hypertension diabetes mode and that's why sort of full circle of the beginning that's why we're not that far from food <laughs> because it really means that you know we come back to understanding how to make the health health system work in a way that empowers patients you know, Jaime was part of a transformation in Mexico in terms of dealing with acute illness and that's where we started you know infectious diseases are typically acute illnesses. So mort morbidity and mortality in Mexico for you know, lower respiratory infection, diarrhea, plummeted. I mean, it's not that different from what it is in this country right now. But if you look at the morbidity associated with diabetes, it's just it's terrible. I mean, it's bad in this country. It's terrible in Mexico. And that gap has not yet, we have not yet had that transformation. So what we've managed to do is in the early days of the HIV epidemic with death staring you in the face and huge infusions of money from outside, we've managed to do extraordinary things with treatment. But I don't think we should fool ourselves. I mean, we're facing the same problems diabetes and hypertension are. And if we do it badly, unlike diabetes and hypertension, third-line therapy costs way more than first-line therapy. So, I mean, economically, it's very much in our interest to get this right. And hopefully there will be very positive benefits for other chronic diseases. And maybe I can just bring one other point related to that. You had mentioned um, women being the bearing the burden of HIV, and certainly I'm a feminist, and we all know that the problems of women in HIV. I want to bring up men in HIV, and this really relates to chronic. Men don't like to go to the doctor, okay? So if we're trying to get men to come in when they're asymptomatic with HIV, get tested, get in care, just like for diabetes, just like hypertension, 
this is another global health crisis we have right now. And I think this is this is something people don't really talk about, and this is an area where I think you do need a multidisciplinary team, and maybe it's related to their their priorities with their cattle or something. I just we have to start tying some of these things together because I know what we're doing right now is not working. So we are approaching the top of the hour. Uh, we have 10 minutes uh, left in our, in our program. I was scheduled to give five minutes of summary, which would be impossible. Um, so I think we do have 10 minutes uh, for uh, discussions driven by questions from, uh, from the audience. Um, and while that happens, I want the uh, panelists and the audience both to think about uh, acronyms that would involve uh, NC instead of BA. Um, for the name of the series. I, I can't do it. I've, I've been trying, but... <laughs> Michelle? First of all, I, I want to thank the group for, and UCSF for hosting a very nuanced um, and interesting conversation. Um, and I want to uh, just make one comment you asked about one of, the, uh, one of the white spaces at Stanford and where we're going. And again, we don't have a public health school or a veterinary school. Um, but what we do have are these wonderful engineers and computers. And the big push now at Stanford is we have this huge collaboration now with Oxford on big data. And I'm going to pick up on something you said, Diane, because I really don't think we're going to accumulate this massive amount of big data. We're working with the Danes. We're working with Oxford. And the question is, could we as four well, or more than four universities in the Bay Area, start asking the big questions about what we should be doing with that big data. So that was my one comment. And then my second question is to you, Paul, because no one's asked you any questions. <laughs> that's the way it's designed. Uh, um, and that's the easy job. It's basically, you've been involved with this epidemic for so many years. And we're at a crossroads now with the ACA coming out and unrolling. And how do you think that's going to impact HIV in the United States when we have this massive enrollment now with not so many doctors to take care of them? Well, I, I can comment, but Diane is the one who's really directly being slammed by this, I would guess. Um, you know, so, I, so my own thought was, is that the ACA is clearly affordable care, uh, uh, is um, going to afford, offer insurance to the currently uninsured, uh, many of the HIV-infected people in this country are uninsured, uh, and that will give them access, depending on what state it is, to various types of insurance here, obviously, uh, Medi-Cal. Um, and they will become insured for the first time and will be able to get care wherever they are accepted as Medi-Cal um, uh, uh, patients. Um, but those won't necessarily be the best places to get care, as in Diane's clinic, um, and uh, I would expect that Ryan White's support will inevitably decrease. Um, it, it's still going to be needed, uh, but I think it's 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 a disruptive um, influence, um, and I don't think we know exactly how it's going to play out. Diane, you've thought about this a lot, I'm sure. Yeah, I think we're living it, and our patients are going through a very, very disruptive, very, very challenging um, uh, phase. And right now, we're just trying to survive the next year. Um, but I, I think there's um, a lot of solutions that need to be found. And one of the things that Paul pointed out is the epidemic in our country is um, concentrating on populations that without some wraparound support services, we are completely deluding ourselves if we think we're going to get a handle on the epidemic without continuing those services. So I, I think we're all in support of wider access to health care. It needs to be quality care, and it has to also include the wraparound services. 
We've done such a good job of task shifting in the developing world of treatment of HIV. Do you see that in the, as one of the solutions? That's um, not all going to be doctor's care. And, and if, as you answer that, just uh, there was a story about the VA, which has now um, come out with um, guidelines for um, advanced nurses that uh, will allow them uh, full, full practice uh, status, which I think, so without physician supervision, so I think, and it's getting a lot of pushback from physician groups, uh, but I think it's starting to happen. Yeah, I, what I can say is I think that we know that um, outcomes are better. The evidence tells us outcomes are better when people have a certain knowledge base. Um, and I think that we have to assure that people have access to a person with that knowledge base. And we need to see what that that group of providers looks like. But right now, I'm certainly in in our clinics, we have physicians, we have nurse practitioners. And as medicine is going and we're talking about chronic care models, Perhaps more importantly is the team approach um, and not just singling out the provider. And I also think a lot of things are going to happen with medicine, telemedicine, viral load suppression, um, so people can live their lives and we can ensure that their disease is being controlled but not having to wait two hours to get to see a provider. I rise mainly to thank Jaime and the group for this illuminating discussion. This is really wonderful. I think this is a beginning of something to, to develop. Just, uh, I was just listening and uh, it occurred to me, you, you brought out a number of ideas. One was uh, uh, interdisciplinarity. Uh, the other was being efficient in providing care and uh, using models that work in one disease for other diseases. And I was wondering uh, whether uh, one could not think of, uh, uh, as an implementation technique, uh, using interdisciplinary teams creating um, clinics that serve different purposes. After all, this is the age of convergence. Can you in fact converge converge, uh, these approaches? And HIV clinics, for instance, can take the lead. And I see in the developing world this uh, incredible disparity in the in the quality and and uh, and resources available to different types of clinics this would be a great move forward you know, it's just a, a comment on that i think also we have some examples um we have a night's landing clinic here which is serving an underrepresented population of of immigrant workers and it's really the medical students and the veterinary students that together have a One Health clinic. And so I think in our education models as well, I know we're all doing that. I think the uh, UCSF does that in a very substantial way and of having models where in our educational systems too, teaching our medical students to work in interdisciplinary teams, I think is a real um, bright light that if we can continue that also, they're, they're much more likely to understand that in the future in a community-based fashion. 
Great. Um, question there, yes. Hi. Uh, my question is kind of in two parts. One, um, working at Tom Waddell here in the city, uh, I've noticed that a lot of our patients come in and um, in regards to med adherence specifically to suppress their viral loads, come in um, and this also ties into chronic care for mostly pain management, specifically to get uh, opiates. Um, and so following like a harm reduction model, which a lot of HIV care throughout the world uh, attempts to follow, um, it's kind of problematic in that, you know, to get patients to adhere to certain antiretroviral therapies, um, we also are expecting them to come in, you know, for that reason and not specifically what we actually uh, know they're coming in for, which is uh, other medications. Um, and then I, I see this paralleling uh, some work uh, in HIV testing in the West Bank that I've worked on. And uh, a lot of the youth there who aren't uh, able to get consistent access to HIV testing, since they live in refugee camps, for example, uh, are only coming in for testing, let alone preventative services and education, uh, for the sake of more sexual awareness and not so much focused on uh, where I think the conversation here in, in an academic setting is, uh, which is um, care, uh, treatment strategies, uh, other things. So, so the, the educational barriers are a big thing. Um, I just wanted to know how, how you, uh, as very qualified individuals, felt that the conversation should shift to focus more on um, patients who maybe aren't coming in for the sake of education and aren't, uh, especially with uh, youth in very disenfranchised communities, how we can engage them specifically to prioritize their health and maybe to seek out testing services, even if whatever their education system or government isn't necessarily focused on uh, getting them in, into an understanding of. Sorry, that was really long-winded. Good. Um, Diane, you want to comment? Tom Waddell, by the way, for the non San Francisco people is a clinic for underserved uh, urban um, people. I think the general question to me you're, you are answering is um, what types of things should we do to motivate people to access health care? And I, our group has had a lot of discussions about this because we're doing population level and what are behavioral incentives that are okay to use? I mean, even ethically. Not, not giving OxyContin. Uh, yeah. I mean, and then do they have to be health-related? Like, is it okay if we have a place that someone can go charge their phone? Should we should we be shying away from things that are not health? And we had a lot of debates in our group. I'm always like, it doesn't have to be health-related. I think it should be a service, so we're, we're capturing the broader good. I think this is really an ongoing global discussion right now. I think special populations have special needs. But I don't think, and I'd be interested in some of the panelists' thing, I don't think we've done a great, like in the health system, we're very kind of tough down. We're like, you should do this, you should do that, you should come. We haven't like said, okay, what what on a population level is going to bring people in? People in, Because even Steph, with you said like, okay, let's rate all these clinics. Part of the problem in the community is people aren't even coming to the clinics, right? So we should be like rating that too. So I think you're exactly right on the very last comment, and that's that when I talk about rating clinics, I'm talking about the degree to which they su suppress viral load in their community, right? In other words, they're responsible for getting people in mm -hmm. and for not losing them not just the viral load of the people who keep coming, right? So I think you're exactly right. Um, I mean, you made me think, 
um, that uh, we haven't started the strategy of co-formulating our ARVs. You could have the red ones with caffeine, the yellow ones with nicotine, the green ones with Oxycontin. Um, Red Bull does it very effectively, right? Um, But even without using addictive substances, um, we aren't very good at this, right? And I just gave a talk to some pre-health students in San Bernardino last weekend, and what I did was I showed them ads. And I showed them the Marlboro ad from when I was a kid. I showed them Coca-Cola ads, uh, which, as far as I'm concerned, is today's um, Marlboro. Um, they are brilliant, right? The, the, I was in Mexico over the holidays. The ad in the movie theaters is all about, it's Santa Claus, and it's Santa Claus telling you to be a good person, to help those who are less fortunate, to invite somebody to your table, showing you that good people are the people who drink Coca-Cola, and who doesn't want to be a good person, right? <laughs> Marlboro... You either wanted to be the guy on that horse or you wanted to take his clothes off, but, uh, <laughs> depending on who you were. But, um, but the point is that Nike, Nike does a really good job selling shoes. If we were selling Nike shoes, we would talk about the quality of the rubber and how long the laces last. And, right? What do they do? They show you a woman at 5 in the morning beating on a wet, wet street. You want to be that tough person because wearing Nike makes you a little bit more like her, even if you're pretty far away in real life. Right? <laughs> But that's what we need to bring that brilliance in, right? And I often say we need to bring what Karl Rove can do to a political campaign. We need to bring what Nike can do to get you to buy their shoes for three times the money. Those people are brilliant. We need to use some of that in in what we do. And we haven't figured out how to do that very well. Thank you very much uh, to the panelists. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.